You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. High fly ball into right field. She is gone! We fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the field. I do not believe that they will ever acquire it as long as there is war. Free at last! Free at last! Thank God Almighty! We are free at last! Oh, the humanity! What just happened? 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 Episode two hundred and four: Rising Tides of Discontent. Good morning, Harry. Here we are on Thursday, May the 25th, recording our next podcast under What Just Happened. And that was a new series that we began on our last podcast, TSP203. And this is TSP204. And today, you can start us off here where you'd like to begin. It's a funny thing about history, Peter. Because that's the way we compute time. And we've had discussions in other podcasts about time and how it could be looked at differently. But we're going to carry on with the normal view of time and history. And what just happened is our ongoing series on things that have happened in the past that we can talk about, in a sense, a bit more casually, but bring you information and entertainment at the same time and all the yada yadas that make for a really good podcast. So today we're going to be looking at the idea, the notion of protest. Yes, and more specifically, the rising tides of discontent. Yeah, I mean, we can talk about rising tides of discontent because in the last few years, we've seen, I think, worldwide, an awful lot of discontent among people in relation to their governments. COVID measures created a lot of tension and discontent and protest as well, which we'll talk about economic discontents, educational discontent. So all of these things have led to a rise in the tides of protest around the world, small and large. Now, to talk about the ancient world and the idea of protest is a bit more difficult because, first of all, there isn't a lot of recorded information about protest in that form. And besides, our notion of protest, our modern notion of protest, is really different from what we would have seen in the ancient world. It was pre-feudal. It was pre-our idea of a democracy and how it's supposed to work and all of that stuff. It was a time of slavery, etc. So very different context to talk about protest in. So we're not going to say a lot about the ancient world in that regard, other than maybe to say that protests began as a thing, if you like, during the feudal era when social mores and social ideals, typically under the rule of the church, in a way. And if groups of people went against those ideals, then there would be protests in that regard. So, for example, in the medieval period, you had Martin Luther tacking his 95 theses to the church in Wittenberg. I think it was around 1517, if I'm not mistaken. Mm Mm-hmm. And he was protesting against the sale of indulgences and that practice in the Catholic Church, where you could essentially buy your way out of sin and into heaven if you had enough money to give the church. And so he listed 95 issues around all of these things. And that was the birth of the Protestant Reformation, of Lutheranism, etc. So religions were one part of the way protests evolved. 
back in those days when religion was a primary mover and shaker of society. Mm -hmm. It's really people trying to somehow communicate their displeasure or their discontent with whatever is going on in their particular society or lives at that time. And so whether it takes the form of religion, work, government, whatever government existed at the time, it's just a way that people sought to somehow get their thoughts and opinions voiced or heard. And of course, one of the main things as we're talking about this to me is also to determine or to split the protest into violent or nonviolent actions because mm -hmm. there are these two very distinct ways of approaching displeasure and dealing with displeasure in an attempt to make changes to correct whatever situation people deem to be unbalanced or unfair. Right. One good example of a nonviolent protest, a famous example, would be Gandhi's Salt March of 1930, mm -hmm. when to protest the British tax on salt in India, he organized a march to the Arabian Sea on March 12th. Thousands upon thousands of people eventually joined him in this march to walk to the sea and to extract salt and kind of symbolically laid the basis towards the independence of India. Also significant in the context of marches because it began, like many marches do, with a handful of people and gradually build as they move on to wherever their destination is deemed to be. Yeah, I mean, nonviolent marching is one of the modus operandi of any protest movement. You could say that the idea of nonviolent protest is fairly recent. In the good old days, the storming of the Bastille and the French Revolution and those earlier times, people weren't as hepped up about, let's keep this peaceful, folks. We don't want any graffiti on the walls or any property broke. People would just go in with clubs and express themselves physically to make their point. Well, to that point, remember too, as you mentioned earlier in this podcast, you talked about the various societal systems or systems of government that existed hundreds or thousands of years ago. They didn't have the tools that we have today. The pacifistic approach was not something considered. Yeah, and the response to protests in those days would be as violent as you could get, right? The, it wasn't a matter of sitting down and negotiating first, which happens a lot now when people protest, right? They would just get out the army or the military and quash the whatever they want to call it, a rebellion or what have you. So, yeah, I mean, nonviolence, as I say, is a relatively recent thing. Another good example of nonviolence was the Baltic human chain. In 1989, August 23rd, and you had millions of people forming a human chain holding hands over 400 miles long across the countries of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, protesting the communist regimes that ruled their countries. But it was only months after that that the wall came down and the Soviet Union imploded, essentially. So there's another example of a way of making a point that is unmistakable. You can't ignore it. But it's not like they're burning down buildings or government buildings and that sort of thing. Well, the fact that it was 400 miles long and the unification of people, when you have that number of people who are working together, the strength comes from the numbers and doesn't require the force because the force is sort of implied. Should you disagree with us, there are many of us to contend with. And I think that's always been the strength of protests in general is the numbers themselves 
that number of people together creates a force in itself. Yes, absolutely. And you could argue that a notion of strength in numbers underpinned the workers' movements of the early 20th century when unions took form, essentially. So workers had a way to fight back against companies that basically were their overlords during the Industrial Revolution. And now they had a way of organizing, cooperating with each other to have sit-ins or work stoppages to improve their wages and their way of life. So a lot of these protests, you could say, were globally important, more important than just the local scene where they took place. So unionization is something that would be a global evolution that protests helped to create. Also, the environment is a global issue that protests are organized around. Mm -hmm. And uh, Earth Day is a great example. It was first held in the U.S. in 1970, calling for healthier, more sustainable environments. People gathered in the millions. Over 20 million people took to the streets in the U.S. and across the globe, ultimately. Mm -hmm. And the overall implication, of course, is that it's really a force of humanity, not an individual cause, but a cause on a global level, which affects all people, all races, all religions. And so... That's the message that's made very clearly, and that this is not just an issue about me or you. It's about all of us. Yeah, and you could almost break protests down into those two categories, one being protesting on behalf of something, like in this case, on behalf of our planet, advocating for a healthier environment, contrasted to protests that are against the tyranny of the government, let's say. And then there are also just simple social conflagrations that can happen. For example, one of the recent ones that happened only three years ago when a black man, George Floyd, in Minneapolis was essentially murdered by a policeman who held his knee on this fellow's neck during an arrest for nine full minutes, cutting off his breathing, basically killing him. And out of that event, we had the birth of a group called Black Lives Matter. So this is something that happens now and then where a particular event sparks a protest or a protest movement. You could also break protests down into categories of people who get out on the streets and organize. So you could say that youth movements would be a category of protests. For example, in the 1960s, the Vietnam protests were primarily fueled by college students. Mm -hmm. I would have to say flower power, the hippie movement, and all of that was a youth movement involved in protests back then. I was involved in some protests in my youth in the early 60s as well to do with nuclear weaponry and that sort of thing, peace activist in that sense. So that's another example of advocating for something, for peace as opposed to being against. Oh, and then there's this. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. 
We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to write. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Peter Finch was the actor. He won the Oscar that year. An amazing, amazing performance. Probably one of the most powerful scenes, bits of acting I've ever seen in a film. He was expressing what a lot of people feel, and that's why it's so pertinent today more than ever. So go and see the movie. It's really good. And it says a lot about what the basis of protest is. Yes. And most movements or most protests, I think initially the attempt is to be peaceful and try and change things in a way that's non-destructive. However, things often culminate in various confrontations or situations where the party you're protesting against is not willing to negotiate or consider Mm -hmm. your side. And I think one of the greatest examples that's very easy to see and explain is the suffragette movement between the 19th and 20th century. Yeah. The suffragette movement was a perfect example of a large group of people, in this case women, trying to gain rights. And a lot of them were not just about being women, they were human rights. And when I talk about this, I'm talking primarily about the English suffragette movements because there were suffragette movements worldwide. Initially, it began as just a method of approaching the governing bodies to make some changes, and those attempts failed initially. And so how did the suffragette movement evolve and grow and become successful? Well, the suffragette movement had been going on for many decades, really coincided with the Industrial Revolution. If you think about the tremendous changes that occurred with people moving to urban centers and productivity increasing dramatically with the invention of all the things associated with the Industrial Revolution. And of course, it was male-dominated, obviously, and the imbalances began to really show. For example, women were paid much less for the same work as men. They were not allowed to vote. Their opinions or their ideas were not taken into account when formulating laws and so on. And so they began to collect and approach their governments. And this began, as I said, all over the world in the 1840s, 1850s. And then, of course, groups organized. Now, I'm going to use the example of England specifically because there was a big suffragette movement in the U.S. with Susan B. Anthony, there was Mm -hmm. in Australia, many other countries, but the primary one that was the focus with Emmeline Pankhurst, the first person of note that began to organize in 1880. She was only 32 at the time, 
And she continued to organize women and, and approach parliament and so on. And they realized that they were not really moving the needle, so to speak. Right. So they actually became quite aggressive and began hunger strikes and a series of more definitive maneuvers to um, make themselves heard. Mm. And this was going back to, again, the late 1880s, 90s. And this went on for decades and was also interrupted by the First World War. So at what point did women attain suffrage through this movement? The actual movement finally passed in Parliament in 1919 in Britain and 1920 in the U.S. with the 19th Amendment. However, the first country to give women the right to vote was New Zealand in 1893. Mm -hmm. Places like the U.S. and England that saw this happening began to also contemplate, well, why aren't we in the same position? So these things were generated over decades, including pre-Civil War in the U.S. The U.S. Civil War actually interrupted that movement because when wars occurred, all the energy, including these movements, were pushed towards the war effort. In England, the First World War put things on hold for a period of three or four years because even the suffragettes, their efforts were also moved towards the war effort in terms of helping medical assistance, the building up of arms, the factories, and so on. And at the end of it, because of their efforts, the public realized their importance and significance during these difficult times. Yeah. And wasn't there an incident where a woman threw herself under the hooves of horses at a horse race, to make a point? Yes. Emily Davison was her name. And that was in June of 1913. Now, there's a debate about whether it was a suicide attempt or she was actually attempting to pin a ribbon on a horse, a horse's bridle as it was running across the racetrack. Because at that particular time in 1913, there were a lot of suffragette supporters and suffragettes in the crowds. In those days, they were trying to make their presence known everywhere. <clears throat> and she was one of those suffragettes. One of the horses ran her over. She didn't die instantly. She died a few days later. And so this drew a lot of attention, but it was sort of a pivotal moment, but was not the base of the entire suffragette movement. It was what happened that day that drew attention worldwide because by that time, newsreel video was available and it was broadcast all over the world. So it simply emboldened all these women's groups around the world. And of course, as I said, there's a crossover with the United States. Emmeline Pankhurst and her three daughters went to the U.S. So there was this cross-Atlantic connection as well. Mm -hmm. And the movement spread across most democratic countries of the time. Right. Kind of puts me in mind of another kind of genre of protest, if you like, which is individual protest. So that woman who supposedly threw herself under the hooves of those horses to make a point about the movement she was involved with. That's not the only example of that. You have hunger strikes that happen as protests, individuals climbing up a tree and vowing not to eat and not to leave until the forest is protected or something. You have monks immolating themselves, setting themselves on fire. There's a famous image of a monk doing that in protest of the mistreatment in that country, whether it's uh, Myanmar or wherever. Gandhi's hunger strike. Lots of examples of these individual statements. 
And, you know, individuals don't have to be setting themselves on fire or starving themselves to make a point. I mean, how many letters to your local MP have you written in the course of your life? Or letters to the editor of the newspaper decrying some event that's happened that you feel opposed to? Individuals can protest in very peaceful but very effective ways without getting into big groups and marching in the street. Not everybody can get into the streets or can walk very well to march with thousands of people. So it's an individual effort. The term bodyguard actually happened during the suffragette movement. The concept initially was a group of women amongst the suffragettes who attended rallies with the intent to protect the speaker. In this particular case, Emmeline Pankhurst, who was the head of the movement at the time. And that's where the term bodyguard came from. That's very interesting. I didn't know that. So bodyguard, you're talking about words here now. We can go in that direction. In fact, most good protests, protests that last, have kind of catchphrases or slogans. In the modern world, you say memes. And so there are lots of famous ones like I Have a Dream, Martin Luther King's, Make love, not war, the Vietnam protests, give us liberty or give us death, liberté, égalité, fraternité, the national motto of France and the French Revolution, we shall overcome, power to the people, workers of the world unite. Most recently in Canada, you have hold the line as part of the freedom convoy. So you have these catchphrases that people repeat over and over again and become symbolic of a particular movement or a particular group of people who are trying to attain equality. So words are critical, really important in kind of branding the, the protest, if you like. People are much more aware of that now with social media and how quickly you can actually brand something through social media. And speaking of social media, so today we have the capability of reaching vast regions, long distances, and almost instantaneously with the ability to unite and move things on a very large scale. Whereas before, back a few hundred years ago, mm -hmm. no one even knew about these protests that were going on in these small villages or smaller communities. Now, the first thing that happens, no matter where it is on the globe, we have the means, social media and our smartphones, to immediately access this information. So there's also a capability or an ability for those people who know how to utilize the current technologies to really put this to their advantage. Yeah, or disadvantage. A good example of that is the George Floyd incident, in fact, that was caught on video. And because of social media and the quickness of social media, People everywhere saw that video very quickly and very immediately. And so when the call was put out to get out in the streets and protest police brutality and racism, that protest grew very quickly overnight all across the United States. In an instant, you had a spark that created fires everywhere. So that's, in a way, the advantages of social media if you want to organize protest and move it forward. But it's also one of the disadvantages when it comes to people responding immediately, maybe too immediately, to events that are happening out in the world. So it's a double-edged sword. 
And you can further complicate that by including AI and the capabilities that are now being generated where you can actually create a lot of information that gives you the impression that it's real. Yeah. You no longer have the assuredness of knowing that what you're seeing and what you're getting is actually happening as it is. Yeah. Uh, the other advantage to social media is that you can create a meme or a symbol that can really last through time. For example, I keep thinking of the Black Power Movement from the 60s in particular, mm -hmm. uh, the raised fist as a symbol of protest. Do you remember that? Yes. 1968 Olympics. The Olympics, yeah. And more recently, Colin Kaepernick taking a knee during the American anthem, which became a symbol of protest. The symbol for Earth Day back in 1970 became a gas mask and a flower. So if you can find a powerful symbol for your protest movement, that's something that can help it stick through time and evolve. Also on that front, if you can find some good music to go with your movement, that goes a long way too. In the 60s especially, you had a lot of protest songs from We Shall Overcome, which is traditional, to Buffalo mm -hmm. Springfield's For What It's Worth. There's battle lines being drawn and nobody's right if everybody's wrong. Ohio. Neil Young's Ohio. Tin Soldiers and Nixon's coming. We're finally on our own. This summer I hear the drumming four dead in Ohio. Gotta get down to it. Soldiers are gunning us down. Should have been done long ago, etc., etc. So music, visuals, slogans, and memes, all are there to support the protest movement and give it strength. We're not terrorists or anything like that. We're here in a peaceful way with vehicles that at least make a statement. We can't work. I'm out of work. I bought a truck in November 2019, brand new truck. I've obviously got payments to do, and I can't cross the border. I was in the States 97% of the time. I would spend out of three weeks, I would be there about two and three quarter weeks easily. And I don't feel that this shot will protect us or anybody around us since we come in contact with almost nobody. One of the most recent ones I think we should talk about before we finish, because it's something that Canadians, many of us, actually are a bit proud of in some ways, and that's the Freedom Convoy mm -hmm. that took to the streets of Ottawa. Truck drivers drove across the country in the thousands, supported by hundreds of thousands of people all along the way and millions from their homes. You couldn't get out to these protests and landed in Ottawa to protest the COVID tyranny, if you like, that they felt the government was pressing upon us as a population. Upwards of 6 million Canadians did not take the COVID vaccine, refused to take the vaccine, many of them on pain of losing their jobs, etc. And so there was a lot of anger built up. And so this convoy evolved and ended up in Ottawa, staying probably a bit longer than they should have, about a month before the authorities, who didn't negotiate with them at all, decided to send in the police military folks to break the whole thing up. But it's an example of a protest movement that was peaceful on the surface of it. People on the streets during that time expressed the idea that it felt more like a party, a street party, than a protest. There was music and laughter and dancing and all of that 
far from what you normally associate with an angry protest of angry people, even though underlying the convoy was this anger over the government's handling of COVID. Mm -hmm. But therein also lies some of the challenges with protests, because as you mentioned, sometimes things get out of hand and you lose the balance and perspective. So knowing where to draw the line, having the kind of leadership that balances out the initial objective with the actual actions that are being taken. I think one of the reasons why people like Martin Luther King were so respected is that they managed to do that. They managed to, despite the gravity of the situation, despite the scale of the movement, they managed to keep people together in non-destructive forms. I think one of the problems with protests is that many people feel threatened by them because there's a lack of understanding and there's a lack of balance in the way some of these protests take place. Well, yeah. I mean, we've become complacent in the West, though, with our easy lifestyle for the most part. And we're not used to getting out on the streets because we haven't suffered the way a lot of people have suffered. Many of us are not one of the traditionally oppressed minorities. So we don't have a lot to protest in terms of our own personal lives. But there are lots of people out there who do have many issues with the authorities and with the way things are happening and unfolding. There is anger in the streets. There's no question about it, especially these days with people being divided so deeply from each other and from their governments. The opportunity to protest is constantly with us. So in a way, it's trying to balance this idea of complacency which exists in societies that have attained a very high standard of living and are comfortable, while at the same time recognizing the significance of maintaining civility in the society. Yeah, people want to be able to be heard. And if they're not heard, if they're shut down or shut out, at some point, you push somebody hard enough and they'll break, they'll explode, and they'll get out in the street and they'll do something or say something or write a letter or set themselves on fire or whatever it is people do whether extreme or mild, to make their point. Because after all, we are all living human beings. We share this planet together, and we expect of each other a certain level of humanity and care and compassion and a good relationship to our social ideals. And when that breaks down, then people can get very, very upset. And so protest is a natural outcropping of what we expect of ourselves and of each other. And so in that respect, it's an important element of our lives, and we should not discount it or put it down. Which, as we close here, bring up another point that we may discuss in a future podcast, which is the whole idea of censorship. And censorship is this block that prevents a lot of the things you just discussed from occurring. And so attempts at censorship are also attempts at blocking this very thing that would stir us to the point of excessiveness or violence because it's a, a level of suppression which is not normal to the human spirit. Yeah, and so people, when they experience that, want to push through it. And the easiest way, in a way, to avoid that censorship is to get out on the streets and put a soapbox down or a milk crate and say your piece. And it's very hard to be censored other than some cop coming along and saying, go home. But if you have 50,000 people out on the streets, 50,000 milk crates or soapboxes speaking their piece, then it's much harder to censor that. 
And so that's the power of protest when it's done well and organized well, is that it becomes a force for change and a force for good in the world in general. And that's the best we can hope for. I just want to say something to you, Peter. I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Mm. I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take <laughs> it anymore. That's all I have to say. And that's part of the clip that you heard earlier in this podcast. Both Harry and I are fans of the movie Network, as I haven't figured that out yet. And that was a great way to close, Harry. Ciao. Ciao, Peter. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. Thank you for your donation to The Sill Podcast.